Okay, so we are into the final week. This is the last week of like, I don't know, like block four of Acts. I swear, whenever I had this idea, got our kind of teaching team together and was like, we're going to walk through, we're going to do one of the big books of the Bible, right? Like, you know, we're going to do an Isaiah or like Matthew's Gospel or Acts, you know, one of these ones. I was like, we're going to, we're going to preach the whole thing. Helen Warnock, to be fair, was the voice of reason at this point. I was like, no, Dave, like seriously, like we're going to be in it for eternity. We're never going to get out of this book, right? And I, I, to be fair at the time, I was like, it's going to be fine and I like session whatever we're on like 26 or something I'm like this has been a stretch right it's been a wee stretch so we're in the last week of the second to last block after Easter we're going to be finishing acts as we land in Jerusalem and Rome and all the stuff that happens in that last block okay but this is the last part of what is technically kind of Paul's ministry um I guess in many ways this is his public ministry, and this is kind of the last block of this before, as you will read in the passage, he tells them essentially he's going to Jerusalem. So his heart is set on Jerusalem, and then actually on from there to Spain. So he kind of says this is what he wants to do, but this is the last part of this block in this very public ministry and all of the things that have happened, okay? We've been working our way through over the last year the story of the church alive at home and with neighbors and then across cultures and today we land in Ephesus. We're in Ephesus today. And at the start of the school year, I feel like every week there's some degree of confession time comes from me whenever we preach, right? But at the start of the school year, uh, Elle, was, Elle was starting P1. She was going to have this interview with her teacher to kind of start the year off. Okay, so I'm working in the Belfast, my, in Belfast, my slots at like 2 p.m. or something. I'm thinking, great, I'm going to jump on the train. I'll go out to Carrick. It'll be no problem. We'll do the interview then, okay? So I, can't, I don't usually get the train. I, you know, I never really got the train. I always did buses because I lived in and around Belfast. So I go to the train station. I'm standing around on the platform over at Central Station or Lanyon Place, as it's now called, right? And so I'm standing there on the platform, my earphones in, kind of, you know, doing that thing, waiting for the train to arrive. And this, this like, older lady kind of sidles up and she says something, but I can't hear because I've got my earphones in. So I take my earphones out, okay? And uh, she says, is this the one that stops at Trooper's Lane? And I'm like, I mean, I'm like, yeah, 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 no, yeah, it is, yeah. And that's fine, okay? She seems happy with my answer. I put my earphones in and go about the rest of my business. Anyway, the train arrives a few minutes later. I get on the train. She gets on the train. Uh, and we're kind of, I'm, I'm going down, you know, the train line towards Carrickfergus. That all seems fine, okay? And at one point, I, I take my earphones out and I hear the train kind of thing say, this is the train for Lauren. It will not stop at Trippers Lane. And I'm just like, Oh my goodness, somewhere that old lady is still riding the train, hoping to get off a trooper's lane, right? I gave her the information, but I didn't have the power to give her the answer, did I? I didn't know that the train was going to stop or not going to... I'm sorry about that elderly lady. I hope you find your way to trooper's lane that day. I made a guess, but I didn't have all the information. I didn't have the power to give her the answer that she needed And I say that today because as we enter this session, okay, as we look at what happened as the church came alive in Ephesus, the narrative is really all about power. It's all about power. Everything that we're going to read, actually today's session is meant to be on Acts 19 and 20, but they're two very long chapters. So uh, we're going to focus really on Acts 19. 
19, and the narrative is all about power. So last week we were in Corinth, okay? And, and if you remember, as we talked about what was going on in Corinth, it was like a great commercial uh, center of the world at that time, okay? Uh, and then towards the end of Acts 18, Paul sets off for Ephesus. We read that last week. Now, Corinth was notable for all kinds of reasons, but as we get to Ephesus... It was known perhaps at the time as the greatest city of Asia Minor. And it was the metropolis of the whole province of Asia, okay? It had, however, perhaps, some commentators suggest that by the time Paul makes his way to Ephesus, as we read today, it, perhaps its best days were already past, okay? There was an issue with a buildup of silt in the port, and so it eventually made the port pretty difficult for large volumes of kind of ships to pass in and out with. So perhaps it had already passed its point of greatest commercial prominence, okay? Perhaps. But then the other big feature of this city was the temple of Artemis. At the time, it was one of the seven wonders of the world, okay? It was one of the major centers of the ancient world, a great hub of trade routes full of culture and money and temples and politics and soldiers and merchants and slaves. It had it all, and most of all, power. Most of all, power at work in this place. So the narrative about Ephesus is in Acts 19 and 20, as I said. So we're not going to spend too much time on 20 today. We're going to focus in on Acts 19. So the short version of what happens in Acts 20, okay, is really a focus on the journey of Paul onwards from Ephesus to the things that he wants to do next, where he feels the Lord is leading him. He explicitly says, you know, I am for Jerusalem. That's where I'm going. In many ways, patterning Jesus' story, okay? His life is kind of leading towards this place. And so at the end, he gathers the leaders of the Ephesian church at Miletus to give instruction and to say farewell. And then he's off to Jerusalem, right? That's the short version of what happens in Acts 20. Read it for yourself a little bit later on. But in Acts 19, which we're going to read today, there are kind of three incidents, okay? Kind of, it, it's kind of broken into three, and there's three things that happen in this chapter. And so I'm going to break it up and we're going to take each of those incidents at a time, okay, and deal with each of them. And as this whole climax of Paul's public ministry and the narrative of the church coming alive across cultures before he departs for Jerusalem and on to Rome, it is par that is front and center. And I would love us to read Acts 19 today and see that in a whole environment and a culture of power and all that goes along with it, Paul speaks of a different kind of power altogether. Power alive in the personal, found in the presence of God, and the power at work in a power struggle. Those are the three things, okay? So the first is this sense of power at work in the personal. And we're going to read Acts chapter 19, verses 1 to 7, okay? So this is this first little block, okay? This is what it says. While Apollos, remember we were talking about him last week, was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and he arrived at Ephesus. Then he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. 
So one of my friends, okay, one of my friends had this friend that they had been praying for and kind of like trying to, they were believing that this person was going to come to faith, okay? They weren't a Christian, they've been praying for them for ages, talking to them about their faith, trying to share and, and lead them to faith in Jesus. And eventually this person came to faith, right? Which was incredible, okay? Uh, and this had been like a long road of prayer and all the stuff, okay? But she comes to faith. And so they were absolutely over the moon. And so as part of that, as part of the church she was going to, she decides, well, look, I need to get baptized. So she goes forward for baptism, and she's baptized. And it's only after this happens, okay, that she gets baptized, that she bursts into my friends, and she's like, you never told me he came back from the dead, right? And I'm kind of like, well, this isn't, number one, this isn't a great advertisement for my friends' uh, ministry to these people, right? But I mean, of all the parts of the message of Jesus, right, the part where he comes back from the dead, you would think is kind of one of the bits that we might understand, we might get, but she didn't know that. And so it was like this explosion of even greater faith that happened after she had already come to faith and been baptized. It's one of the best bits of our faith, isn't it? The sense of hope and the sense of redemption and the sense of healing and the sense of restoration and life and all the things that are possible because of the cross and the resurrection. And in this incident with Paul, okay, I say that today because Paul comes across some disciples as soon as he arrives in Ephesus. We don't know why or how he knows they are disciples, but he must sense that in that, that there's something just not quite right about what they believe, right? Otherwise, why would, why would you ask the questions that, you, that he asks? So he comes across disciples when he arrives. He asks them some questions. You see, they were disciples, but what did they know? And what did they believe? Michael Green would write of them in his commentary, it's crystal clear that these disciples were in no sense Christians. And so Paul, he really asked two questions to them on the day, okay? The first, did you receive the Holy Spirit? The second, what baptism did you receive? And the thing is, right, that these men had at least intended to be part of the kingdom of God, hadn't they? I think when we read things like this at times, it's like, oh, these guys, like, they didn't know what to believe, you know? What, what, like, how did they come to faith? All of that sort of stuff. But I think we have to have some sense of encouragement that these people at least wanted to be part of what was happening around the ministry of John the Baptist, because that's who they talk about, right? They want to be part of this kingdom of God movement, which had started under John. Like, they meant to believe. They wanted to believe. They wanted to be part of it. They just didn't know or believe beyond what John had taught. Like their faith was limited because it only went as far as what John had taught. And so Paul's questions are really trying to get to the bottom of the big question, which is where is the direction of our faith or of our following? Like like what direction are we believing in, right? And you see, John the Baptist's ministry was one, he was the forerunner, okay? That's what the Gospels tell us about him. He prepared the way for Jesus. His message was really all about calling the people to repentance. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it says in Matthew 2, okay? And in fact, all the Gospel writers speak of John's message like this. Repentance was the big direction of his teaching, right? Personal repentance. But Jesus, Jesus was the way to life. It wasn't just about repentance. It was about so much more. As one commentator writes, John was a person, but Jesus was a person and a place of living. 
It was about so much more than just the message of repentance that John had kind of pointed to and talked about and urged the people to respond to. Jesus' message was not just about a place of repentance. It was about a place of living. And John's baptism was about the water that washed, but in Jesus, it was about being baptized by the Spirit which fills. And so Paul leads them through it all that day, okay? Not that these men didn't believe the right things. John's message was good in the end of the day. It's not like John was some kind of rogue teacher teaching people wrong things. It was just that he was the forerunner. And Jesus was the fullness of the message. But it was incomplete. And so this is one of the earliest kind of templates for what it means to come to faith, okay? As we kind of talk pastorally about what a faith experience means, this is one of the earliest kind of templates or formulas, if you will, that we can see of what it means to give your life to Jesus. There's four parts, repentance, faith in Jesus, baptism, and being filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's what Paul does that day. That's the direction that he leads these 12 men in. See, this is about a power at work in the personal lives of these men. This is about a story greater than the one that they'd known, a power to transform lives and animate them in ways that they had never known. They'd obviously wanted to be part of it all, and now the Spirit's work made them part of it all. And Luke is wanting us to see in this passage, okay, this little block of what's going on, that Paul's work in Ephesus was concerned with the Spirit's work in individuals and, and out into a whole community. That's really what's going on. As you'll see the narrative unfold, it's like the Spirit's work first alive in these 12 men and then an even greater number and, and then eventually what we get to at the end of today, right? It's about the Spirit's work. Everything we know about Ephesus indicates that social, civic, religious, and spiritual power are all concentrated here. And yet, even in the face of powers, the powers of this world, the greatest one of all was the power of God at work in personal lives to see them truly transformed. Greater by far than all of the civic and social and financial and cultural power in that world at that time. This was the power that could truly change lives. See, they were disciples, but they weren't Christians. And sometimes I wonder, you know, if, if more accurately today it's the case that lots of us or people around us, we could consider ourselves Christians without truly being disciples. Sometimes I wonder if, if our issue really is the opposite of what these men were, right? That, that we could say we're Christians. We could say we signed up to something at some point in our life, that we gave our life to Jesus. We said, yes, we prayed the prayer, like whatever the response was, that we could say we're Christians. But are we really disciples? That that question that Paul was trying to get at, okay, what is the direction that our lives are being lived in? Because really that's the discipleship question, isn't it? That our lives are lived in a direction or lived in the way of Jesus, right? That there is a direction we are meant to follow. And our lives can be lived in all sorts of directions, but perhaps not in, as the disciples would call it, the way of all ways. You see, maybe this is a question of direction for you this morning. Where do you direct your following to? If you're really honest with yourself, what is it that sets the direction for your life, right? Career, relationship goals, study, family, whatever. Like, what is really directing your life this morning? 
Or maybe this is a question of power. You see, I have this sense that often we have a faith like theirs, if we're honest, right? That it's been built on a sense or a personal conviction around repentance. Certainly when I was growing up in the mainstream church, like that was the big message that you know, was talked about. This, this need for personal repentance and conviction of sin and on all of the kind of narratives that went along with that. Sometimes I think that our, we can very often have a faith like that, okay? Getting right with God in many ways could characterize it. And yet Jesus was all about a way to life. And it has been my experience, not only in my own life, but in the lives of lots of other people, that yes, repentance is part of it, right? But there's way more than that. Following Jesus, getting in the way of Jesus, okay? It's, a, it's about way more than just the act of repentance. It's about a whole way of life and a way to life. And very often, it's the Holy Spirit that's the missing piece. It's the Holy Spirit that gives life, that animates it's the Holy Spirit that transforms. It's the Holy Spirit that truly convicts us of the stuff underneath the surface that we don't want to talk about and we don't want to deal with. It's the Holy Spirit that leads. It's the Holy Spirit that reminds us of what God has already done in us. It is the Holy Spirit that is very often the missing piece. It's the peace that allows us to know that we now follow this new and living way. The first power at work was the power at work in the personal lives of these 12 men. Maybe today is a moment where you need to think about that, the direction of your following, or whether you have received the Holy Spirit. And second, this is the power of the presence of God. It's the power at work in the personal, but also it's the power of the presence of God, okay? We're going to read on from verses 8 through to verses 20, okay? This is what it says in this next block of the text. Paul entered the synagogue and he spoke boldly there for three months. Remember last week we said this was just his general tactic. When he went to a city, he would first of all go to the synagogue and preach there. So he's doing the same again in Ephesus. He went there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them were obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who had went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that day that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. There's that word again, power. And power is something at the heart of so much of our world, isn't it? 
Political power, financial influence, popularity, position, on and on and on, right? They're the columns, they're the sorts of topics that fill the columns on newspapers and articles online. How to get power and what to do with it when we have it. Just look at websites like the Wall Street Journal or Forbes or the Financial Times and see how often it's a topic of conversation or advice on how to grow the power that you have. And this next block of the text from verses 8 to 20 is really all about power and where it comes from. Where it comes from. You see, first we have this incident with the sons of Sceva and others like them. And then we have the aftermath of that incident and how a whole bunch of magicians and people with all kinds of beliefs responded. You see, there's this summary statement in verse 20 after all the events have taken place. And it says, in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. And this is a pretty similar summary statement to the ones we find in Acts 6 and we find in Acts 12. And actually beyond Acts, we'll find statements alluding to exactly the same thing multiple times in the book of Ephesians and also in the letter to the Colossians. Paul is suggesting to a city full of power that that the name of Jesus is stronger than them all. And this block has a bit of a focus on magic and kind of sorcery and kind of mystical stuff and all of that sort of thing, right? Paul's saying that the gospel does have power. I mean, look at the miracles, right? Handkerchiefs that touch them are taken and they heal people that are sick, right? It's incredible. It's astonishing. The gospel does have power, but it isn't magic. The gospel has power, but it's It's not magic. C.S. Lewis would say of magic that it attempts to gain power without paying the price of submission to the God whose power it is. The gospel's got power, but it's not magic. And that's exactly what's at work in the incident with the sons of Sceva, okay? We read in verses 13 and 14, some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of, of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this, right? So they've seen the miracles happening. They've seen the incredible stuff going on under the ministry of Paul, what's happening. And and what they've done is what most of us do when we see the Holy Spirit at work in people's lives. We say, I want that, right? We see incredible stuff happening and we're like, I want to do that. I want to be able to do that. I want to see that happen in my life, right? I want that. The problem is, though, that they've discerned power instead of presence. They've taken one look at what's going on. And what they've discerned is power instead of presence. You see, they took one look at Paul and the disciples and all they saw was the outworking of some kind of power, but they didn't see the relationship that moved in and through Paul and the disciples that were with him. They saw power, but really it was presence. And so they tried to do the stuff outside of the relationship with Jesus, don't they, right? It's like name droppy, like my friend of a friend, Jesus, he does this stuff, right? So, you know, come out, right? But it doesn't work like that. The demon in the, the person knows, but he's like, I know Jesus and I know Paul, but who are you? And so they get beaten up on that day really, really badly. Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know about, but who are you? That's what the demon possessed guy says. It's like they've tried to be name droppy but they don't really know Jesus. And that's the true source of any power at work in the church and in our lives, isn't it? The true source of anything good and anything true 
and any power to transform lives at work in the church or, in, or at work in anyone's life is not the power of that person. It's not their gifts. It's not their talents. It's not how eloquently they speak or boldly they say things or beautifully they sing. The power is in the presence of God. I often think that it happens most easily in the church when we try to press into technique, right? Like there's some sort of way, okay, some sort of how to unlocking the power of God, right? We get so preoccupied with stuff like that in the church. Like if we just did these things, right, there would be healing or, or stuff would happen, right? We get so bogged down in the technique of it all, right? If I just prayed that way or if we had worship that looked or sounded like that or if I just worked myself up to sounding really spiritual or if there was soft pad on in the background to everything I do, then like revival would come, right? If we just had the technique, the spirit would move. We become obsessed with the how. It's why here at church very often you hear us talk an awful lot about this stuff, but we spend very little time talking about what or how you should do things, and we spend an awful lot of time talking about who. It's not about power. It's about presence. They mistake the power for power, and what was really going on was presence. And what happens here is what happens when we're keen to do the work of Jesus without constantly pressing into the life of Jesus. And I think that's a temptation in every Christian life, isn't it? We really want to do the work of Jesus, right? Like we hear the message of the Bible and we're like, sign me up. I'm in. I want to do this. I want to see people come to faith. I want to see my workplace transformed and, you know, my family. And, you know, I would love to see a healing and maybe I could get a prophetic word. And we get like so drawn into the work of Jesus, but we do it without pressing into the life of Jesus. There's power, but it's really presence, and it's the presence of Jesus. And after this incident, right, and a whole host of others, magicians, Jews, Gentiles, they witness the power of the presence of God alive in Paul and his co-workers, and they see it for what it is, right? They see it for what it is. So they renounce their old ways, they burn scrolls, is what it says, religious paraphernalia, and they choose to follow him, right? This is a massive moment. We don't get how, like, hugely powerful this moment would have been in a culture like that where sorcery and mysticism and all of that sort of stuff was rife to have had this very public show of people burning the stuff that stood for that old way this was massive this was a big deal actually we'll get to how big a deal it is in a little minute in the last part of this chapter right this was massive And to be honest, that the message Paul tries to convey himself as he says farewell in chapter 20, okay, it says much of the same thing as what we've been reading in chapter 19. You see, he calls the Ephesian leaders together at Miletus. And he kind of talks about three things when he calls them together. And they're all in line with this. The first thing he says is, you know, you know, you know, okay? You can read that again and again in chapter 20 as he talks to them. And really, he's talking about how he lived. This is something Paul does throughout his life and throughout the letters that we have. He says, like, you know how I lived amongst you. I wasn't taken in by money or greed or nice clothes or any of that sort of stuff. You know how I lived, right? How I was among you. And how had he lived? He had lived Jesus like and way amongst them, not selfish, not greedy, not out for his own fame. You know that I live Jesus' way. And then he said, it's kind of flips, and the next bit he said is, I know, I know, I know, when you read that. And all, that's all about the future. I know where my life's going. I know that suffering is ahead for me, but I know that it's what Christ has called me to. The destination of my life, in other words, is what Jesus was calling him to. 
You know I live Jesus' way. I know I'm going the way Jesus called me. And finally, he tells them to beware, to beware and to lead well, okay? For they lead God's church, bought with Jesus' blood and led by the Spirit who had appointed them as overseers. In other words, he's telling them that his life and work was really Jesus' life and work alive in him and that this was the work that they were being called to continue. The power wasn't his. The power was the presence of God. And so it is for us. It's why I like to ask a question quite often when I sit down with people. um, And the question is, how are you doing with Jesus, really? Not how were you doing five years ago, or how were you doing when you came to faith, or how were you doing when you got back off that youth team that you were really excited about? Like, how are you doing with Jesus now? What's God doing? What's he speaking? What are some of the challenges to your following Jesus right now? How are you doing today, really? Because there is power here. There's power at work in this church. But it is the power to transform lives and signs and wonders and stuff beyond all that we can explain. But it's not power itself. It's not technique. It's not in a hunger to do the work of Jesus. And we will wreck ourselves in the pursuit of it if we're looking for it in any of that sort of stuff. Because the power is really the presence. And we get it by going after him. Not by going after the stuff. It's found in relationship with him. How are you doing with him today, really? It was power at work in the personal. It was power in the presence of God. But finally it was visible in a power struggle. This last block of Acts, okay, Acts 19. We're going to read verses 23 to 41. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. Remember, this is just right after all those guys show up and burn all their stuff, and it was worth about 50,000 drachmas, right? So that's all happened in a very public way, and now we're here. And a great disturbance rose up about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a whole lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers and related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There's danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself, who's worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The, crowd, the Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? 
Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You've brought these men here, though they've neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he'd said this, he dismissed the assembly. And so there's a riot. People show up, they burn their stuff they, as kind of a sign of their changed way of life. And off the back of it, there's a riot. And I often think when we read scenes like this, you know, our minds are taken to sports crowds, you know, like the, the hostile crowd outside Anfield with like flares and everything, you know, trying to intimidate the team coming there to play, right? I mean, it's a million miles from Ravenhill and the worst sporting atmosphere in the known world, right? The really creative songs of Ulster, right? Like you've really intimidated Leinster, right? I mean, that, that's really got them. They're quaking, right, when they get there, right? You know, but it's not like that. It makes me think more like I grew up in North Belfast, uh, through the 90s and, and particularly around the Drum Creek protests around 1995 to 2000. I can remember visibly so many of those riots in those summertime periods in North Belfast and in interface areas. Like you were trying to just like go to the cinema or something and it was like, oh great, there's dudes with like a burning car in the middle of the main road, right? But it was anger. It was just anger. What I remember of the time was just anger. They were ferocious. They were shaped by an anger. Lots of people were there and they didn't even know why they were there. That happens very often in a riot. And this one is exactly the same. And much to our familiarity here in Northern Ireland, it was an anger kind of shaped by religiosity. And one of Ephesus' most important features, okay, as we mentioned at the start, was its worship of the god Artemis and her temple, okay? Just listen to how William Barclay describes the temple, okay? It was 425 feet long by 220 feet wide by 60 feet high. There were 127 pillars, each of them the gift of a king. They were all of glittering Parian marble, and 36 of them were marvelously gilt and inlaid. The great altar had been carved by Praxiteles, the greatest of all Greek sculptors. The image of Artemis was not beautiful. It was a black, squat, many-breasted figure to signify fertility. It was so old that no one knew where it had come from or even of what material it was made. The story was that it had fallen from heaven. Here it is. The greatest glory of Ephesus was that she was the guardian of the most famous pagan temple in the world. Ephesus' greatest glory was this temple which was in her midst. Its greatest glory was Artemis. And so we get this maker, Demetrius, he's called, okay, and he's, having, he's just witnessed the scene that we have spoke about of burning books and artifacts related to Artemis, okay? He's just seen that. And I think we kind of struggle to know how that might feel, except if maybe you had a picture in your mind of someone rocking up one day with a small stall in the middle of Wall Street and started to talk about, you know, how Mammon, you know, the god of greed and excess and all that stuff is ruining people's lives, and he's wrong, but Jesus is the way. And one by one, stockbrokers started coming to faith in Jesus, and 
and as they did in greater number after greater number, they would walk, I mean, they probably use iPads now or something, but they, they came out and burned their iPads, right? Or their financial stuff, their very expensive suits and their, you know, their, their very expensive pens and they start burning them themselves in this personal act of like, I, I'm changing my ways, I'm going to live a different way. And all of a sudden that grew and grew and grew until there were many, many more people and now you're starting to understand why such a reaction might have been the case. And it's exactly like that here. He's just witnessed all these people coming to faith and how bad it would be for business, right? He makes little silver tributes to Artemis. Apparently, if you go to Ephesus, you can still buy them today as like little souvenirs. But then, like this was big business. Archaeologists that have dug up the ancient parts of Ephesus, one thing they found again and again and again, images of Artemis. And people like him, he made them. Or he helped other makers to make them by bringing them business. Some of you are just looking for them now on your phones. I know that's what you're doing, right? But it's the truth. That's what happened at the time. Here's the reality. Because it's still true today. When the power of the gospel comes into conflict with the financial, trouble is never far away. When the power of the gospel comes into conflict with finances, trouble is never far away away. And so Artemis, he's clever, okay? He's quite clearly got a vested interest in this whole thing. He brokers these guys to go and make the stuff, right? And so it's not really an effective strategy to be like, guys, I'm going to be broke, right? That's not really the best strategy if you want to rile up other people to your cause. So he speaks a little bit more broadly than that. This is what he says in verse 27, okay? There is danger that not only our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who's worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty, right? He's like, these guys, what's happening in our city right now, it's trouble for our trade and our temple. In other words, this Christian thing is going to ruin our lives and our livelihood and our city. And so the result is anger, and it's a riot. To put it in context, I haven't been to that great amphitheater, but lots of people have. It held 25,000 people, right? We're not talking about some small thing here. It held 25,000 people. But this is a challenge that we can and should still feel today. The challenge of what happened right then in that city is a challenge that we can relate to today. N.T. Wright writes of it, this rushing together of the economic, religious, and cultural impact of the gospel is one of the major issues that Christians are having to grapple with again in our time. There is a power struggle. And the thing is that most of us, we already know there is, don't we? We already know that we are living our faith right in the middle of a power struggle. Most of the time we like to do, as my dad pointed out a number of weeks ago, right? We just like to angle our anger at the culture, right? The culture is to blame. The culture is wrong. The culture is leading us and our young people astray and all of that sort of stuff. But really, if we're honest, the power struggle is going right through the center of every single one of our lives. And our faith should and does challenge every area of our lives. There's this kind of double question at work in us, isn't there? On the one hand, we have to realize, all of us, that Jesus claims every area of our lives. There's not one part of your life that he doesn't say, mine. 
claims it all. It's not enough to just live out his way one or two days a week or in one or two areas of our lives. The truth is for most of us that we find it really quite easy to live comfortably with all sorts of different compartments in our lives. Don't we? We compartmentalize. Like these are the bits that I let Jesus at. These are the bits that I don't. Like we, we kind of blast door them off from each other like emotionally or spiritually. We don't want to deal with the fact that if I let Jesus at my ambition. Or if I let Jesus out my finances, or if I let Jesus out my deepest longings, like what would he do with them? So we, we, we cut it off, don't we? So we cut off money or sex or how we should speak or pride or unforgiveness or whatever it is from him. But the truth is it doesn't work. Because much like the way of Jesus was now interfacing with every aspect of civic life in this city, the way of Jesus interfaces with every aspect of how we live. But also sometimes we're tempted to try and live, right, as if that kind of purpose or that kind of call, right, that's just the reserve of the people who work in ministry, right? Like people who work for the church or parachurch stuff, right? they're the people that need to live that way. You know, what could God possibly have to say for me? You know, I'm a doctor, I work in HR or marketing or youth work or I'm a teacher or whatever it is, right? As if he doesn't also have a call on you to subversive living if you work in any of those areas. The whole point is that the gospel lays claim to it all, but the gospel also lays claim to us all. We so easily find ourselves in the crowd, don't we? Like if we're honest in in our lives in lots of ways, it's the crowd that has our belonging, doesn't it? Angry that life isn't working out how we want it. Maybe the things we thought we would have or have done at this point in our life, right? We get angry about those things. And if we're not careful, we're in the crowd when really we should be in the congregation. We're the ones that should be rolling up our scrolls and burning them, not the ones who should be out in anger about the risk to our way of life. Here's the thing. The book of Acts has shown that the work of God is critique and it is a challenge to every temple. It was Parthenon in Athens, it was Artemis in Ephesus, and even the temple in Jerusalem itself, even us, the church people. That temple, the gospel's a critique for that too. N.T. Wright says this, we are to be so definite in our witness to the powerful name of Jesus that people will indeed find their vested interests radically challenged while being so innocent in our actual behavior that there will be nothing to accuse us of. That is what subversive, provocative living sounds like. So definite in our witness to the powerful name of Jesus that people will indeed find their vested interests radically challenged whilst being so innocent in our actual behavior that there will be nothing to accuse us of. That is the provocative life that we are called to whoever we are, whatever we do, wherever we go. A number of years ago, I just decided one day, I don't know why, but I just decided that I was no longer going to eat crisps, right? I just decided, and I wasn't going to do it, right? And the interesting thing that I found out, and I have since, you know, backslidden quite heavily, (laughs) so says the paprika tin of Pringles. You know when you just, like, leave one at the end, so you're not responsible for finishing the tin, right? Anyway, that is now in our drawer. I've backslidden horribly. But just one year, I just decided one day, that's it. Not eating crisps anymore, right? 
And the, the thing that I discovered in the sort of year or 18 months that I just didn't eat crisps, right, was how radically challenged other people were about their consumption of crisps, right? Like you would go to someone's house or you would go to like for a party or something like that and people would wheel out crisps and they go, here, you want one? Or someone would say like, oh, you see when you open those like Thai sweet chili sensations, I can't stop, right? And I would go, actually, I'm not eating crisps. Now, I was not making a judgment call on their lives, right? I was not preaching about their crisp consumption. I was not guilting them. I was not preaching the gospel of not eating crisps, right? I was not trying to convict them of their guilt and shame. But I would get the longest list of ex- Oh, I'm just eating them tonight. <laughs> really? You're like, I mean, really? You know, or you would get this kind of, oh, I just eat them at social occasions. Oh, I'm just eating them because they're here, right? You know, you get all these excuses. Like this thing would come out in people, like their, their sense of personal conviction. Because I stopped eating crisps, they were like, you know, something got at me about their living. Provocative living. (laughs) That feels a stretch, doesn't it? The provocative living of not eating crisps. Loads of you afterwards today, I'm not eating crisps anymore. (laughs) Revival has come to Belfast. The the shelves of Tesco are stripped apart from the crisps section, right? The thing is, though, it can happen beyond that, can't it? I have a, a friend, and, and when she was at university, okay, um, she, she lived in, in halls with this other friend, and at this point in this friend's life, she had decided that she was, this is not, you know, this is actually true, she was trying to sleep her way through the alphabet, right? So, you know, guys of every letter of the alphabet, she was trying to sleep her way through, okay? Uh, and she, at one point, she's talking to my friend about the kind of, like, just woe of, you know, what this was doing to her, just guys are weck and this whole thing is just weck and at one point she turns to my friend and is basically like you Christians make such a big deal about sex to which my friend says to her at that point actually I don't I'm not the one out chasing sex all the time I'm not the one talking about it I'm not the one complaining about it afterwards in fact I never talk about it you do And it was like this moment of like penny dropping, deep challenge in her life for part of her lifestyle choice that was not lived in any way because of something that my friend said or did. She wasn't preaching the gospel of not having sex or any of that sort of stuff. It was just provocative, subversive living that in some way managed to critique and challenge a whole other way of life. And that's what it means, guys. That's what provocative, subversive living looks like. The kind that floods every compartment of our lives in the power struggle of influence in our world, in our feeds, and in our hearts. The way of Jesus lays claim to it all. And if it does, the result can be a provocative life. This part of the, the story in Acts is all about power. Firstly, about power at work in the personal, that it is the Holy Spirit's work, it is Jesus' work alone to transform lives. But also it's about the power of the presence of God, right? And in that, the power is not the power, the power is the presence. And though we may seek, long for, want for, pray for the power of God to move in our lives or our friends' lives or our city or our nation or in circumstances that are so far beyond ourselves, it's not the power that we seek, it's the presence of God that we need. And finally, that there is a power struggle at work, not just in our world, but in our lives. 
And the gospel should flood every compartment, even the ones that we try to seal off from each other and seal off from him. And if we do, if we let him, if we live that way, we might live a provocative life.